This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 208. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman. Today, I am joined by Mr. Matthew Marister. Hello, Matthew. Hello, sir. It's great to be here with you again. You sound a lot more lively now than you did just a second ago, so I'm <laughs> glad to hear that. You must have taken a swig of uh, Red Bull or something. So Yeah, it's got me wings. <laughs> and uh, today, we have a special guest with us also, and that is Mr. Aaron Rayner of Savage Combatives. Hello, sir. Hello, gentlemen. Thanks for having me on. We, it's really, truly the honor is ours having you on the program today. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this because I know we're going to be covering some really good stuff. And uh, I'm confident we're going to have an excellent discussion and conversation. So uh, getting to know you a little bit and your background, Matt, knowing Matthew and who he is, and then, of course, there's, there's myself. We've got three different dudes with probably some different ideas about some things, and it's going to be a really good conversation today. So appreciate everyone for joining us on the podcast and so today, by the way, we have a special sponsor of today's episode, and that is they haven't been on uh, been a sponsor in a few episodes now, so they're back today, and that is Pig Lube. So go check them out. Go to concealedcarry.com forward slash pig lube, and uh, this is I'm, what I'm showing here on the screen for those that are viewing on Facebook. This is just this is a, a pretty comprehensive but simple uh, cleaning kit that has pretty much everything you need to clean your guns. Uh, everything from a 223556 to a 9mm 40, 45 caliber. Uh, it's got picks for cleaning those really small areas. You've got the star chamber patches right over here. Uh, good stuff. Plus plenty of rods in appropriate lengths that you can customize and make whatever length you need cleaning whatever you are doing. Now, personally, I like a lot of the products that, you know, like the, the, the ropes or whatever, like boar snake that you pull through. But this is one that goes with me everywhere because it kind of has everything that I need uh, for a lot of different guns. And I don't have to have all these other miscellaneous random things that are getting lost or tangled up or whatever. And then uh, we sell this on, in our online store and it comes in it with pig lube itself, the lube that everyone knows and loves and also the uh, pig lube cleaner. Uh, actually, we, they just launched a few months ago this gel solvent and many of you probably haven't worked with gel solvents before but it's genius stuff i don't even know how it's like it's it's like witchcraft matthew it's witchcraft <laughs> it's like yeah uh, it better be because their, their other stuff is really good so i i imagine that they're just going to continue i mean i i love their their uh their lubes it, it it's worse and you know i did that review um of a bunch of different you know side-by-side comparisons and pig lube did really really well so i like it i i mean yeah. There's a video out there. I mean, you, you would think that pig glue would have to pay these guys to do this kind of stuff, but some dude does this like uh, corrosion test. He just did it on his own accord. He, he took all these different lubricants and uh, including just standard motor oil too. Cause I know there's a lot of guys out there that just, that they just use motor oil for their, their lube and their guns, which you know, mm-hmm. it, it works. I mean, lube is lube, lube works, but some things do work a little better than others. And uh, it was pretty interesting to see this YouTube video and he, he shows all these different products and, and how they perform. And, and surprisingly, I mean, it, this was when pig loop was new even to me and it performed better than everything else as far as protect protection goes corrosion. So that was pretty cool to see. Anyway, uh, 
today's other episode sponsor is Guardian Nation. GuardianNation.com. You, you know it. You you probably love it. Many of you, we know we have many uh, Guardian Nation members out there uh, that listen to the podcast and jump in with our Facebook Lives as well. And so, uh, but there are still many, many more of you that are not yet a part of the nation. So head on over to GuardianNation.com. Uh, whether it's the training videos that we offer in our members only area, whether it's the discounts on products, whether it's the quarterly gear boxes that we ship. Uh, we just got a message yesterday from a member. He was like, when's the next box? Uh, he's probably a new member. Uh, but uh, the next box, in case you're wondering, ships out in May, uh, which means that you either need to be a paying member for the three months preceding May. That means you need to be a paying member uh, for, what would it be, February, March, and April, because on April 31st, or 30th, April 30th. There's not a 31st. <laughs> on April 30th, uh, that's when we take our count for those that qualify for boxes that ship in May. So in case you're wondering how that all works. So without further ado, I say we get into the meat of it here today, gentlemen. So here we go. Mr. Mr. Aaron, Savage Combatives. I'm going to start right off the bat here with asking you about uh, your background you know, kind of, you know, whatever you're comfortable with sharing, just so people that don't know who you are already, they can get to know you a little bit, understand, yeah, you are a credible dude, like, you know what you're talking about, so you're not just some random guy we picked up off the street, uh, so, uh, Aaron, give us, a like, a quick 30-second, 60-second rundown of, of who Aaron Rayner is. Okay, cool. Yeah, so I am currently employed as a federal law enforcement officer for an undisclosed agency that I'm not going to talk about. This is my third federal law enforcement agency that I've been employed with, however. I've uh, been in law enforcement for uh, about eight years now. I got out of the Marine Corps in 2009. I joined 2001 and decided to pursue a career in law enforcement. So one of the reasons why, uh, like I said, I got out, even though I had a really successful Marine Corps career, is that I wanted to get into law enforcement. I had a two-year lapse between getting out about a year and a half lapse between getting out and, and getting into uh, law enforcement, where I had an opportunity opportunity to do some contracting work and some security work. So I, uh, that's pretty much me in a nutshell when it comes to, to my work, my professional, other than training in martial arts and doing some bouncing and bodyguarding stuff when I was younger, that's pretty much it. Awesome. And now you are the founder of Savage Combatives, savagecombat.com. Is that your website? That's it. That's correct. So, so yeah, savagecombat.com. I have a couple of other uh, partners. One of my partners uh, does bushcraft and survival aspect of um, Savage. And Savage is really just an acronym for surviving against violent and grievous encounters. So um, surviving cool. out and, and things of that nature, we have an approach there. I have some other partners that do the holistic side, massage, and nutrition, dietetics, because we want to survive against diabetes and obesity and cancer and heart disease and all kinds of stuff as well. So I'm really just the course developer for the combative side. And um, I've got a couple of other partners that are on board to kind of cover some of the other elements of survival and perseverance. So now, Savage Combatives, you have this Savage, do you call it the Savage Combatives program or Savage program? Well, um, initially, Savage Combatives really was just me. It's a program that I started working on developing in 2013 based on all of my martial arts training experience, my bodyguarding experience, security, my military uh, experience in the Marine Corps, and my various law enforcement experiences, and all the trainings I wanted to put together into one program to where I can teach these things to my wife and children that they wouldn't otherwise have the opportunity to learn because they didn't go through the same training experiences that I went through. 
Um, so as I continued to develop the program, teach it to um, some other people, I had some people that wanted to come on board and, and add their own specific uh, style or twist into the survival program. That's how we ended up getting the, the craft and the and wilderness survival. That's how we got the massage therapy. She was a, a martial arts student of mine, actually still is. So um, the Savage Combatives, the reason why we have savagecombat.com is because at the time, that's all we that's all we were offering was the combatives program. Nice. Now, what what it would be the what would be the kind of your core principles uh, as part of the Savage Combatives program? Well, I'm a, I, I hold a lot of particular views, uh, especially when it comes to surviving and surviving in a self defense situation, surviving a deadly force encounter. Uh, so, one of the things is is recognizing when you're in a deadly force encounter. Um, so some of the core principles is I honestly believe that if you want to survive any of these really terribly bad encounters, you need to be more skilled than your opponent and you need to be more violent than your opponent. I know that sounds bad and I know we don't want to be violent, but in a violent situation, you have to match violence with violence. And that's, that's my approach. That's my belief. Um, people can disagree with that all day long, but if you're a, a combat vet or you're a law enforcement officer, I'm sure, I'm sure you'll agree that. Um, violence is not good, but in a violent encounter, you better be more skilled than your opponent at violence and or more skilled at your firearm, accessing your firearm or whatever other deadly force device you can, you can get to. Um, the other thing is that I think is super important. That's not really covered as much in the uh, community. In my particular opinion is not just how to use all these tools, but when to use all of these tools and why you're going to use all these tools. So at the very end of every scenario that we run or any of our trainings, I always leave it open to question and answer the legal aspects of whatever it is we're learning. And I have found that more often than not, students are more interested in those questions and those aspects than they are in actually learning how to use a firearm or learning how to use a knife or learning how to use a baton or handcuffs or whatever the case is. They're more interested in, hey, thanks for teaching me this stuff, but is this going to keep me out of jail? Is this going to keep me free? Um, so I think that's important. I don't cover it. And that's one of our major focuses in, in Savage Combatives is legal aspects or ramifications of whatever it is we're doing. Hmm. Obviously, you know, here with the Concealed Carry podcast, concealedcarry.com, uh, we're obviously really big on the laws too. In fact, we Absolutely. dedicate a whole segment in the podcast each week, just talking about just, we call them now our justified saves. Uh, you'll hear us more and more referred to them just simply as saves uh, because we want to highlight the fact that people, law-abiding citizens, regular Joes and Janes, they, they are able to defend their, themselves and their lives, which, I, I mean, that's, that's what it's all about at the end of the day. As far as like what we are so passionate about is we want to see lives saved. We want Absolutely. to see people that are not victims that we are not reading about in the news uh, or hearing about on the radio or seeing on the TV. Instead, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to see these stories where, you know, homicide in such and such neighborhood, you know, due to a, a burglary or a break in or uh, home invasion, right? Like those, there are too many of those stories. Uh, but we want to highlight the stories where people are not victims and they stay within the bounds of the law. They do what they're supposed to do and they save lives. Hence, hence the saves. So um, yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad that's a really integral part of your curriculum as you are working with and teaching, instructing students uh, that you're making sure they really have a sound foundation in the laws because that's definitely really key. 
Speaking of, so, you know, I'm going to deviate just a little bit and, and Matthew, feel free to jump in whenever you want to, man. But talking about justified deadly force. Okay. I'm going to pick on you just a little bit, Aaron, because I, I want to get your perspective because I, I know that those listening to the program today will appreciate uh, what, what you have to offer, what your, your viewpoints are on this. Recently, I saw a video on Facebook of, uh, and it's filmed from a vehicle and they are watching as a police officer, actually two cops, uh, you know, there's one behind the other one. Eventually he shows up uh, that he's chasing a suspect across the street into the street onto the other side of the street. And he's, they, they start exchanging blows. You know, they, they're, they're taking swings at each other. Uh, the officer draws his baton out at some point and, you know, starts going at the guy with his baton, trying to get him to comply and, and also to create some space. Meanwhile, his backup officer, whatever his, his cover officer shows up, pulls out the uh, pep- pepper spray, sprays the dude. Oh, I forgot to mention that before all this, the dude tried to tase him. Okay. The first cop tried to tase the suspect and that didn't, that didn't work. And then, then they resorted to the blows, then the baton, then the cover officer shows up, pulls out the OC spray. That doesn't seem to work. The suspect gets a hold of the first officer's baton, starts going at the cop with the baton. And the rest of the story is history. As you might imagine, they draw their weapons, they fire, the dude is down. So the video, the interesting thing is the perspective is it's filmed from a vehicle of uh, a bunch of males. They're sitting in the car and as they drive by the scene, they're heckling and, and giving grief, you know, to the cops. You know, you guys are murderers, all this stuff, right? So, I mean, this is the, this is the world we live in right now, obviously, with social media, uh, with 24-7 hour coverage, uh, formal and informal, where we have amateur journalists, you know, they whip out the cell phones and they're taking video and they're capturing stuff like that. They throw it up on their YouTube and it's going viral and, you know, and you've got amateur commentators, people that don't understand stuff saying, you know, these, these cops are murderers, um, I use that that example, that specific example, obviously, uh, not to suggest that it means one thing or another thing, but but that's just one recently that I saw. Curious about your thoughts on on all that, um, and and what you're dealing with as a law enforcement officer in your capacity, and and then also how we incorporate appropriately into our courses as instructors uh, the the teaching and application of justified deadly force. Okay. Yeah, that's a, that's a great example. Um, and I like this story because there's more than just deadly force involved in the story. You know, we have the whole use of force continuum here, particularly when it comes to just throwing blows back and forth and you're escalating all the way up through your taser, your baton. The OC thing doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me because then you're, you're kind of decreasing the force there, but you know what? He felt it necessary to do that. But um, yeah, you don't, you, in this particular instance, um, one of the things that we have to take into consideration, both as the law enforcement officers, but especially as uh, concealed carry uh, holders, is that when we introduce a weapon into um, a scenario, into a scene, into a fight or whatever the case is, that wasn't already introduced, like the baton in this case. Obviously, if you're fighting with somebody and you're going down, the use of this baton was totally acceptable. You know, according to the story, I didn't get to see it, but according to what you're saying, now, if you're going to blows with this guy and you've already tried to um, have use a lower level of force and you're continuing to go up, up the uh, use of force continuum, using a baton is totally acceptable. But now that you've introduced that baton, 
and it gets taken away from you, obviously as a law enforcement officer, we're not going to be, you know, we're specifically trained not to use that baton in sensitive areas. And right. Most, most if not long, all law enforcement officers will know that you can't take your collapsible baton and just start hitting someone in the head with it or in the neck or any of these areas that are going to cause death. And if you do, then you're, you're definitely using deadly force at that point. Right. Takes your baton from you. They've, they don't necessarily know that or care about that. So at that point, uh, the baton in the hands of the bad guy, who's now swinging that baton at me more than likely at my head at that point, I think deadly force is justified. So, um, one of the things that I teach and it's one of the things that I learned as a law enforcement officer is what deadly force is. I, I wrote an article recently, it's up on my website and I posted a little, uh, 10 CFR, you know, it's, it's in the article um, specifically what the definition of deadly force is. But if somebody has the means, the opportunity, and the intent um, to inflict great bodily injury or harm to you, then you're in a deadly force encounter. And so those are just some of the three, th- three key things you're going to have to articulate. You know, did the person have the means? Well, at this point, in, as the law enforcement officer is fighting the guy, well, now, he, yeah, he does have the means. He has a baton. Does he have the opportunity? Well, if he had a baton, but he was four miles away from me, no, he doesn't have the opportunity. But in this case, yeah, he has the opportunity and he's taking that opportunity because he's swinging his baton at me. And is he showing the intent? I would say, you know, again, I didn't see the video, but, you know, if 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 somebody's swinging a baton at my head, I think all three of those things, all three of the elements of the justification of deadly force is certainly there. And you'd better be able to, to, to articulate that. Um, whether you're a law enforcement officer or not. And that's what we have to do as law enforcement officers. If we're in a deadly force encounter, we have to articulate all three of those things, at least for the agency I work for and the other two agencies that I've worked for. Yeah. If that answered your question, does that? That's good. You know, I mean, so what I thought found interesting with that video that I saw, you pointed it out, obviously, is you said it didn't make sense when the dude pulled out his OC spray. Right. Right. You know, because yeah, I mean, he he's already used a taser, which is, I mean, that's, that's not, that is not non-lethal force. That's less lethal force, right? Uh, I don't remember the last time somebody, I know it can happen. It does happen, but it's rare. I don't remember the last time somebody died from being, being sprayed by OC, but, but anyway, so um, yeah, that, that kind of was like a little bit of a step down, but I also thought that was interesting because to me, it seemed to show that, okay, the officers weren't, their mindset was not crap. This thing didn't work. So the automatic response is just to go immediately to the gun. It was like, hmm, we got this tool. Let's use that tool. That didn't work. Crap. Okay, let's use this tool. That didn't work. Let's use this lesser of a tool, but let's at least try it. Didn't work. Okay. Now now this dude has a deadly weapon in his hands. He's swinging at me. I, I don't know what else to do other than I've tried everything on my tool belt. I've literally deployed everything. Okay, let's go to the gun. You know, that showed, I think, an immense amount of restraint. Now, I know some people will look at that kind of stuff and they would say, well, why can't they just tackle the guy? Why, why don't they just take him down? So, I mean, Matthew, like I said, feel free to jump in, buddy, because right now it's, it's, it's the Aaron and Riley show. <laughs> and, and Matthew, I know you have a lot of good thoughts on this, too. I mean, you've lived it. You've been on the streets as a cop uh, in Southern California. Uh, you know, so why, why, you know, you know just, just to clarify so you know where I'm coming from, I am of the belief that there are many law enforcement officers that don't have – skills where they ought to be where it comes to hand-to-hand combatives right and there are many situations where hand-to-hand could be used more effectively but in this kind of situation why not just tackle the guy at this point what are you guys' thoughts 
Yeah, well, I'll just like as I was listening to you guys both go, you know, and, and see your point of view. It's interesting because you guys both come from a law enforcement background, right? And and for a lot of the listeners that might not have a law enforcement background, we're talking about articulating um, factors that would cause us or justify us to use deadly force, right? Um, and a lot of people that don't have a law enforcement background might think, you know. I don't really understand what they're talking about as far as articulation and why it's so important. It's like, I, I hear it all the time. Well, if I'm justified to use deadly force, I'm justified. It doesn't matter, it, but it does. And um, so I think that portion of, you know, being able to, and, and I'm not saying if you can't articulate it, you're not justified in using it. I'm just saying you need to be able to articulate it because that is how, you're going to be seen by the jury and, or, you know, the investigation and they're going to ask you those questions. And if you can't really tell, if you can't explain that this is why I did this and this failed. And I believe that, you know, I had to go to this force option um, or I was going to be, you know, injured. um, Great bodily harm was going to be done to me. If you can't articulate that it's problematic. And, and not only after the fact, but before the fact, I think understanding, like Aaron was saying, the why and when you can use deadly force is so important because it can cause you um, to not act, act appropriately or respond appropriately to indications that this person is going to be violent or that they are escalating it far beyond your ability to keep up with, you know, just escalating it minuscule, you know, small um, uses of force. So I I see this a lot in law enforcement, which bothers me a lot is that a lot of law enforcement uh, officers don't get the training, like you said, in hand-to-hand combat or or, or, um, control techniques, right? And they are quick to resort to uh, a baton or uh, a taser. And these things do not, they don't, they're not very successful. Um, many of the times, most of the time I see these, these instances, um, where, uh, where an officer gets injured or these, these videos where it goes on and on and on. And it, it, as an officer that I, you know, I would go hands-on very quickly. Like I, I, that would, that was one of the things, you know, we, you learn, ask, tell, make, right. You ask somebody, you tell them if they're not going to do it, you tell them what's going to happen and then you make them. It's not, we're not going to go back and forth five, six, seven times because that is an indication that this person is going to be resisting and possibly assaultive. And so for me, um, I, I was able, you know, I saw a lot of instances where I could control the situation a lot quicker when it was a lower level of force needed hands on rather than con- Continuing to up the ante and, you know, like you said, the one, the one officer comes in and starts spraying with pepper spray. Well, it probably would have been better if he not, would not have put sprayed with pepper spray and just gone hands on and, and got, you know, put him in a carotid restraint if he's allowed, you know, if the, the, the agency allows that or do something that you, you already see that this guy is very assaultive and to just lower the level like Aaron and you were talking about. It's 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 an indication that they don't really understand the justification of why they're using this force, and I think it's very important not only for law enforcement officers, but especially for for citizens. You know, because you're not held to the same exact standards. You know, as far as uh, 
you know, understanding a force continuum or anything, but you still have to be able to justify why you use this force. Um, so, so yeah, I, I guess that's kind of an offshoot, but yeah, as you were guys were explaining that it's, you know, it's really important for concealed carriers as well. Um, you know, I'd like to hop in there if that's okay. Uh, cause there's a couple of things that you pointed out that I thought was important. Um, and one of them is that feelings aren't fact. So a lot of the times what I hear out of people is, well, I felt like my life was in danger. And you're going to need a lot more articulable facts than that, than I felt like my life was in danger. Or you read it on these Facebook posts all the time. So you just, all you have to do if you use deadly force is just say that you felt like your life was in danger. Well, no, not really. You have to articulate why you, what were the facts that led you to believe that your life was in danger? You know, I, I don't know how many self-defense video sponsorships that go through my Facebook posts, um, you know, advertising for some sort of martial art or self-defense and how many people on there were like, well, I just got my gun. Well, I'll just go to the gun. I don't need to uh, learn self-defense. I don't need to learn how to protect myself. I'll just go to the gun. And I think that's one problematic making those types of statements in an open forum, but also having that mindset that there is no force at all and deadly force and there's nothing in between is going to be really problematic. And it, it, I'm surprised just like you are. I'm surprised how much that is in the law enforcement community. It's crazy to me. And if it's going to be in the law enforcement community and we're, we're expected to have these high standards of training, it's certainly going to be in the non-law enforcement communities. Mm-hmm. And, and one more thing I wanted to say, and, and it's because I can't stand it. You guys might have, have, have talked about it a little bit is, um, this statement, I, I really hope after this podcast, people stop making this statement and it is dead men tell no tales mm-hmm. making those statements on Facebook. They're not good. Um, it, it just shows a potential future judge and jury where your mindset was at long before you were in a deadly force encounter. Yeah. But I think changing the mindset is really what we need to get into. You know, I'm glad you brought that up, Aaron, because uh, we we have addressed it on the podcast before. Obviously, uh, in fact, I think we had a whole episode uh, dedicated to to that very early on in the, in the days of the podcast. But uh, <clears throat> I'm glad you brought that up because I was thinking, as you said that, how, just how false that statement is, because you you do see that I've seen it on social media many times. Dead men tell no tales. However, people forget that evidence tells a story. Right. And I also forget that there may be witnesses that you're not, that you're not even aware of that mm-hmm. will tell a story in this day and age, especially where people have so many of these, these cell phones with video cameras built into them, where it takes a simple swipe of your finger across the screen of the, of the phone and bam, you're recording. You don't know who's watching or where they are uh, able to watch from. I mean, you have no idea you're involved in the situation. So there's that, but like I said, it comes back to evidence. I mean, a prosecutor is going to look at the evidence and they see, hmm, boy, these three wounds went through his back. Now, just because you shot somebody in the back doesn't necessarily mean that you that it you know that that's a big false premise too, right? That Agreed. somebody shot to the back, it automatically means that you know that person was wrong in, in shooting them. It, it certainly raises you know, some questions, (laughs) you know, there has to be a really good reason why uh, those wounds appeared the way they did. Uh, But that, that's just one example, that evidence, yeah, that dude's dead, but that evidence tells a story and that leads them to ask other questions. 
And so I'm glad that both of you touched on the thing that's very important that is, that is the, the need to articulate why you did what you did. And articulation means that it's not just feelings. Because you have to, I mean, yeah, I felt like my, my life was threatened, but why did you feel that way? Well, it's because this, this, and this, you know, his hand was going into his waistband and he had already, you know, threatened me verbally or, you know, like, like that, that's a very simple, small example, but that's at least some measure of articulation as opposed to, I just felt, you know, scared. Yeah. But, but officers are really good at articulate. Most officers uh, are really good because you know, you have to over and over, but, and I find in in classes with civilians when I'm teaching civilians is that Mm. the way you, the way you interview them or ask them questions, you can elicit more information from them, but they're not, they don't realize what, you know, they don't, it's inside them, but they don't articulate it correctly. For instance, they might say, you know, uh, let's say, um, sexual assault or, or, or forcible rape is, is, um, just just, deadly force use of deadly force is, uh, justified in, in, uh, to protect against, uh, forcible rape. And you ask the woman, okay, well, what, what happened? Well, he grabbed me. Okay. Well, what, what I thought he was going to rape me. Well, what did he do? What specifically, what were the specific things that he did that led you down the road that you thought he was going to rape you rather than he was going to grab you and take your purse, you know? And, and once you start asking questions like that, then they can start articulating, but to be able to know that prior to, um, and, and those reasons prior to, mm-hmm. and, and kind of think about it, it gives you a little bit more uh, confidence and in, in understanding of how to respond to certain things. Um, it, it, so, yeah. Well, you know, since we're talking about training methodologies and stuff like that today on the podcast as well, um, that's why, you know, it's fine and dandy if we're talking about, hey, you guys need to be able to justify your force. You need to be able to especially justify the use of deadly force. Um, but if they haven't been involved in a high stress situation, if they have never had that elevated heart rate where they had to fight for their lives or at least go through some sort of training that simulates them fighting for their lives. And at the very end of that training, articulate why they did what they did on a training environment, which it's okay if you make the wrong decision because it can be changed. We can talk about that. The instructor can talk about the students. And so that's, that's one of the things that I'm really passionate about. And that's one of the things that we do in Savage Combatants. There's a variety of scenarios at the end of every training module where I'm going to elevate your heart rate. I'm going to have role players specifically in these red man suits, these fist suits. You're going to have some force on force. You are going to have to be able to articulate yourself. Now, not all of them are force on force. I have specific scenarios that are designed to be able to talk your way out of it. So we have some training of escalation of force as well on how to not use force if it's not necessary. But I think it's important that people go through the training, just like we did as law enforcement officers. I'm sure all three of us did. Went through the training where you have an elevated heart rate, and at the end, you're trying to justify whatever it is you did and learn from your mistakes in a training environment so that when you're in the real environment, hey, you know, I've been through this before. I've done this before. Yep. You know, I was thinking, one of my favorite uh, force-on-force scenarios to run is the one where... I hate to use the word trick, but you set up a scenario where you're really testing the student with their ability to recognize certain cues or, or whatever it is, you know, 
and then ultimately, and, and you kind of know a lot of times going in that they're going to fail that scenario because you've intentionally set it up that way. But I like those because it, it, it really helps teach and drive home the point that, you know, a person draws the, you know, a lot of times I've seen, I've seen this in, uh, uh, what is it like TI, you know, like the simulators, there you go. This is what I was trying to find, you know, like the different simulator scenarios that I've seen students run and they will sometimes draw the gun and start blazing away. And you, you have to go back and be like, okay, now why'd you do that? And they have a hard time, you know, either explaining why they did what they did or they misinterpreted, you know, some of the cues or, or things in the environment, you know, and, and I like those scenarios because that I think really helps a student to see and understand how important it is to recognize what the facts and of the actual situation are, what is actually going on, and that you can articulate that before you're drawing that gun, there's a thought process behind it, not just, well, this thing didn't work. And so I just automatically, you know, my training and that, that is the dangerous thing. And that's what we're getting at here in this episode today. I wasn't necessarily expecting to go down this rabbit hole, but we see this very often both in law enforcement and also in the civilian world where people get in a situation that they don't know how to handle. And the only training they do know or understand is I'm in a scary situation. I don't know what to do. So I'm going to draw the gun. Now, how about this video the other day that's been making the rounds of the, uh, because it just was released related to this, uh, um, bond, op, a bond agent, you know, this, uh, yeah. Yeah. what was it in Oklahoma? I think it was Tulsa, right? You got this lady who is a, a bond, a, a bond agent, right? So she issued a bond. She paid the bond on this guy that bailed out of jail. He's, you know, going through whatever court processes. And for whatever reason, she's decided that she is going to call in that bond. You know, he hasn't met the terms of the bond or whatever it is. And so she's brought him into her office and you see him kind of talking there and stuff. And she goes to arrest him, you know, to take him in. Uh, and, and he doesn't want to be arrested. He doesn't want to have the cuffs put on. And so she doesn't know what else to do is the way I, I watched that video. And I'm amazed that I, I am a little bit amazed that she was acquitted of this, uh, of these Me charges, too. you know, cause you watch it and it, it it's, it's pretty sketchy. Right. But I, I was really looking at her face and her body language throughout the whole process. And what I see is I wasn't expecting him to try to jump out that window through that bal- over that balcony. I don't know what else to do. I can't have him get away. And she grabs a gun and fires and shoots him in the back. Um, hey, Matthew, you mind if I uh, kind of take this one? Because I, I just kind of got into it yesterday. Yeah, so yeah. Um, and was asking some questions on it. And I was reading. One of the first things I do is read through all the different comments. So I've got actually a lot to say on this. So I guess the bond was for $35,000. She was going to lose half of that or 10% of that $3,500. He texted her and said, hey, gone to Florida. I'm leaving. Um, so like indicating he's going to skip out on the bond, she calls him back to the office. And so again, a ton of things problematic with this. One of them, fan of this, especially if you have a partner in this case, I think her older son was her partner. If you look at the video, um, there's yeah. like, um, an older, older kid there. And he doesn't know squat. You could tell. No, no. And, and so then that's what I'm going to bring up that he doesn't know squat. No, no offense to him. But um, I don't know how many times I've worked with a partner and we both know that we're going to arrest this guy. 
one of the things you don't do is pull out the handcuffs and show the guy, hey, I'm about to take your freedom away. That's right. like law enforcement 101. Yep. <laughs> you can talk, talk them into turning around. Have your, as you're talking to them, have your partner go around behind them. And like Matthew said, do, go hands on. So I think a lot of this could have been subverted and, and not happened at all with the use of proper tactics, the use of proper, which again, why it's so important to be trained in other things other than just going to the firearm. Um, but since the guy ended up getting out the window and she instantly goes to her gun, I read on some of the comments, how many people are under this crazy impression that they could use the justification of Tennessee versus Garner to shoot this guy in the back. It's absolutely insane. Now, viewers that don't know, Tennessee versus Garner is like, again, that's law enforcement 101. Everybody learns that going through a law enforcement academy. And it's, you know, the use of deadly force, particularly when it comes to a fleeing felon. But there are so many articulable facts that need to be present that just were not present here. And one of them is, you know, was the guy a danger to society? Was the guy, I think the guy was arrested initially for burglary or something. So it's not necessarily a violent crime. And the guy wasn't violent when he was trying to leave. I don't know. I didn't, just based on that video alone, I'm right there with you, Riley. It is, I try not to really hard lines on any particular thing, but uh, that one was, I don't know how that was justified. I, I don't know how it was justified. And I don't know how all these people that are, you know, get their law degrees on Facebook, how they can say, oh, yeah, I would have done the same thing. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, you'd also be facing charges then, and you might not be <laughs> as lucky as this lady. I think the only reason that she got off was because the prosecutor went for first-degree murder. Agreed, 100% right? agreed. Which, which would imply that she had premeditated. premeditated. This. And I don't think that's the case necessarily. I think that she simply was in a situation like, Oh crap and grabs a gun and uses a gun. I mean, if he'd gone for manslaughter instead, or Easy. if she was in a state where the jury could have had an, you know, would have had instructions where, where that's, you know, that, that exists in some states where they might not find you guilty of first degree, but they can find you guilty of a lesser charge. That's not the case in this situation in Oklahoma. She's lucky. Uh, in Tennessee versus Garner, you're so true. I, that actually, that comment was made on that same video that I that I described earlier, where these cops had struggles, you know, arresting this man. Uh, where you know, there's all this debate. Well, you know, why did they have to shoot him? And guys are like, well, he was escaping, you know, so he, you know, he he probably would have gone off and killed somebody else or something, you know. And, and <laughs> it, you, you're absolutely right. Uh, we we have so many law degrees out there that were awarded at the University of Facebook. Uh, and uh, that's really problematic. Uh, that, I hate to get drug into those online debates. Uh, and I certainly try to avoid them. But there's there are times I just can't help it because I can't, I can't stand the fact that there's these people out there and others, pe- others that are being influenced by their comments potentially, right? right? Knowingly or unknowingly, you know, they're reading this and going, oh, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and and it's like, no, we got to, you know, these are, these are legal issues. And not only that, it's a moral issue. Agreed. We're talking about killing somebody uh, that there's no good or just cause for doing so. I mean, that's a serious moral issue. And we should take it a lot more seriously than our society does at times. Good stuff, gentlemen. So like I said, didn't necessarily mean to go down that rabbit hole, but uh, it, it came up and, and you guys obviously have really good thoughts. So let's sh- shift gears a little bit here. Um, because I know that 
Matthew expressed to me, Aaron, that uh, one of the reasons that he, he reached out to you was that you've com- you've commented on and 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 communicated with Matthew uh, about some of the articles and things that he's written on concealedcarry.com. And Matthew writes some some good stuff. There's a reason why we keep him around. And some not good stuff, you know. I'm, <laughs> I'm not infallible. <laughs> so. Um, you know, we, we did title this podcast, Applying Skills in the Real World. Um, some of the, we've been talking about some real, real world stuff, but uh, let, let's talk about a specific skill. In an article that Matthew wrote, and we've talked about this on the podcast, had to do with holster, holsters, drawing from those holsters, and perhaps also reholstering in those holsters. And uh, I think that one controversial element that comes up mm-hmm. is look or don't look when reholstering, right? Agreed. Yeah, controversial for sure. <laughs> That's why I call it my controversial stance. I know it's yeah. controversial. I like to stir the pot sometimes. <laughs> All right. That's good. It's good. It gets people thinking. Matthew just loves trolling people on our own site. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, so, so Matthew, just give us a quick rundown of, of what some of the key points in your article were. And then, you know, I, I want to turn it over also to Aaron and get his thoughts. And let's just have a little bit of a discussion about this idea of, of holsters and, and drawing, but also especially reholstering. Yeah, so, so real quick, um, I think it was 2016, I wrote, a, wrote an article. Um, and it was in response to um, my kind of change in philosophy um, I, you know, I, I train, uh, Marines in marksmanship and law enforcement in marksmanship. And, um, in both of those, uh, doctrines or, or, um, concepts, we are always trained, you know, you don't look at the, the gun back in the holster. It has to become muscle memory. And, um, and, you know, it was, it was always just kind of something that I never even thought, Hey, I'm going to look at the, the holster when or we'll look at the gun when I holster. Um, and when I started training civilians, um, my, my kind of philosophy on this um, shifted a little bit. And, you know, I try not to get too dogmatic in the philosophy, into a training philosophy because um, sometimes you can miss out on um, being self-critiqued or, or actually learning. You stagnate yourself. Um, and so I, I looked at it and, and and I actually kind of shifted towards, um, yeah, you know what, as a civilian, um, more, more often than not that you're probably not going to be, um, changing use of force, de-escalating use of force or, or, or changing to a, a different force option. Um, whereas in, in police, you know, as a police officer, you might be doing a felony hot stop, you have your gun out and then you have to go put you know, cuffs on the guy. So you, you holster up, but you don't want to take your eyes off, off the, uh, the bad guy. Yeah. And so, but as a civilian, normally you're not carrying other force options. Mo- I mean, there are a lot of guys out there and gals that carry knives and, and pepper spray and all kinds of stuff. But I didn't, you know, when I started training civilians, I realized how many don't. And so I said, you know what, there's a lot of different holsters out there that people wear. And, and you know, I don't want to say, uh, I, I wouldn't turn somebody away because they're not wearing a holster that I suggest or think that is better. For instance, an off body carry type thing, a purse, or they carry a holster that collapses underweight. I wouldn't recommend to carry those, um, for everyday carry, 
but they do have special or specific applications for civilians. And I know they're going to use them, whether or not I tell them, you know, hey, these are the pros and these are the cons and you should wear this. So when I when I started teaching people how to uh, civilians, how to draw and reholster and things like that, I realized they have different types of gear. They have a different kind of mission um, where they're not really going to um, have to deescalate all the time or, or switch to a different force option. And frankly, on average, they don't have the same uh, skill set as police officers or law or, or Marine or, or military because they don't train as much. And I didn't want to get into the philosophy that, well, if you don't put a thousand rounds downrange a month that I'm not going to even let you in my course. Or if you have that kind of holster, get out of here. You know, I didn't want to become that because these people need training and, and I want to facilitate training. And, and I know practically speaking that some people are going to carry in a purse. Some people are going to carry in a soft holster. And um, I want to be able to train them and get them to a level where they realize the, the cons of carrying with that holster or whatnot. Um, but they, they, they train and they do it a little bit safer. Um, and so the, the, the concept of the whole, the, the article was, Hey, when you go to reholster, um, it's okay to take your eye off the bad guy or off the threat uh, to, to holster because if you are holstering, there shouldn't be a threat there that you should holster reluctantly and that you, you shouldn't be holstering a gun if there are threats out there. Um, and so at that point, if you've already established that the, the area is secure and that you're going to put this gun away that you drew, um, that, it's no problem to look down, make sure your jacket or a drawstring or your holster didn't break and get pieces in there while you're Russell fighting with this person or, or anything like that. Just take a quick look and, and as you reholster. Um, and so, and I know it was controversial and it was a change of my previous mentality. So, um, yeah. And, and like other articles that I've written and, and, uh, spoken with Aaron about, um, you know, we, we see things a lot of the times the same. And then we, we have different points of view and, you know, the good thing about Aaron and the thing I, I want, why I wanted really to him to come on and talk about this is that he does have a different point of view, but we can do it in a respectful way where everybody can say, Hey, you know what? I understand that. I might not agree hundred percent with him or hundred percent with him, but I understand. And, and um, I think we're missing a lot of that in not just uh, uh, firearm instructor world, but in general, like we can't, we can't disagree with somebody, you know, it, it, or you can't disagree and still be their friend or, or anything. And so, um, yeah, I, I thought it was really good. And I wanted Aaron to come on and state and, and, you know, explain his, his side. And, and because I know there's people that, that think that, you know, and, and uh, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just a different, different concept, you know? Yeah. So, um, first of all, uh, I a hundred percent agree with you. The civility in today's society is virtually non-existent. Um, particularly when it comes to the firearms community or anything that's going to have some sort of political uh, stance. So it's super refreshing to be able to, um, bounce things off of each other. Um, and we've done it a few times. It's difficult because 90% of the stuff that I both put out, we agree on, but that 10%, you even like, 
added perspectives that I've never thought about. And I, on this particular topic, I think I ended the conversation with you with, well, you know what? You go out and teach however many civilians, you have 10, 15, however many people out on a line, and I don't do that. 100% of my instruction is super controlled. I have at least two instructors, and I will never have more than four students on the line at a time. So a lot of the safety, things of that nature, is not something that I've even had to consider. I, you know what I mean? So when you bring it up, and that, that, that makes really good sense. It's not, not something that I considered. It's not something that I still necessarily agree with, and I'll touch on some um, topics right now, but I can definitely understand your perspective. So I'm seeing this a lot more um, in the community. Uh, there are a handful of people that um, are super big advocates for looking your gun into the holster. Um, I am not an advocate of training to look your gun into the holster. Um, so, and That's I'll, an important I'll, distinction. That is an important distinction, yeah. So, um, like, like you said, when it comes to um, things being dogmatic, I try not to be dogmatic in my approach to a- anything, um, particularly when it comes to firearms, because when you do that, you kind of, the, the learning stops. And on this particular topic, um, usually there are, there's a lot of people who are dogmatic one way or the other. Absolutely never, ever look at your holster if you're going to reholster or always look down and reholster. And so I don't take either approach. My approach is don't ever train to look your gun into the holster. Number one, it's not something that needs to be trained. That's like saying I train to put my hands in my pockets. You don't need to do that. It's just something that you're going to instinctively do. So in my personal opinion, if you constantly train to look your gun into the holster, that can be a training scar. I'm not saying it is a training scar. I'm saying it can be a training scar. So like, we're, you know, as law enforcement officers, um, we're always trained that when you're done shooting, and Matthew, you have a really good video on this, and you wrote a really good article on um, assessing your threats. And one of the things you posted in your article is, and I, you know, it might even be the same article, actually. Um, one of the things you talk about is breaking that tunnel vision. And so we're, we're talked about that a lot in, in our law enforcement training is we want to break that tunnel vision. In my mind, even if you've already kind of broke that tunnel vision, when you look down to reholster, there's a, a strong possibility, particularly as a civilian who hasn't been in a lot of these scenarios with elevated heart rate, that you're going to just refocus that tunnel vision to another location. That being said, if you go to reholster, and I have a lot of really good training ideas on how to do that, and, and civilians can do this right at home. I do it all the time. I did it when I first started carrying a firearm full time, and, and I encourage people to do it. I just stand right in front of a mirror. It can be a full length mirror, it can be in your bathroom, and I draw and, you know, obviously make your firearm safe or use like a, a blue gun or something like that. I draw, present, and then, you know, reholster, and I'm looking at the mirror as a reholster so I can build that muscle memory. Um, is everyone going to do that? I don't know. Um, but that's what I do to help me get that muscle memory. Now, that being said, um, I've reholstered and have experienced, you know, problems or whatever the case is. And I'll look down and put my gun in the holster, clear whatever's out of there. And I think that's totally acceptable. Yeah. I don't think it's necessarily acceptable in my personal opinion to train to do it all the time. Um, like, as you stated, you know, in the military, they never trained us to do it. Law enforcement, they never trained us to do it. Um, but I'm seeing it a lot more and more, especially with people in the civilian sector, um, not just training civilians, but people who have never had military experience, 
people who've never had, and I don't want to drop the guy's name, but he's got a really big company. He does a bunch of videos, use of force videos, talks about those use of force videos. He's super dogmatic about, I always look my gun into the holster. I always teach all of my students to look their guns into the holsters. And I'm like, nah, you don't teach it because it's not a teachable skill. It's just not a skill set. Looking your gun into the holster is not a skill set. Um, you can encourage your yeah. students to do it, but I think that when you start getting dogmatic about it one way or the other, um, you can miss out on a lot of, a lot of training. Now, that being said, um, obviously, with the Savage Combatives, I'm a huge fan of people training in and learning other methodologies and approaches other than the firearm. We discussed that a little bit earlier. So, um, you know, one of the big things we do is if you're going to carry a firearm, you should carry a tourniquet or an IFAC in general. And God forbid you're actually in a deadly force encounter and you order the guy to the ground or you get him down or whatever the case is. Um, you're not going to necessarily know. I don't think anybody ever knows that hundred percent of the threats are all the way down. So you're going to holster when you're comfortable to holster. And I a hundred percent agree with Matthew on this. And I think everyone can agree you should be really apprehensive and super methodical when you're reholstering. Yeah. And if part of your, you know, you being methodical is looking down at your holster, then, you know, that's a decision that you're going to make. Um, but yeah, you should definitely be apprehensive about it. Now, that being said, if you need to provide care for yourself, whether that's applying a tourniquet, uh, uh, provide some medical care to a family member, you want to go recover the weapon that the quote unquote bad guy had, uh, or maybe need to clear that weapon. Um, if you happen to carry handcuffs, and I, you know, obviously this is gonna laws are gonna vary from state to state. But if you've just ordered this guy down the ground, you're waiting for law enforcement to show up, and your state allows you to carry some sort of restraining devices, and that's something that you're going to choose to get training on and do. Um, all of those things are particular reasons why you would reholster and not necessarily be a hundred percent sure that all the threats are down, so to speak, or, you know, you don't know if there's going to be more than one threat. So for those reasons, and again, I don't, I don't teach, you know, 10, 15 people on a range and I have not seen what you've seen, Matthew. So um, my mind might easily change on that. If I ever, if I ever get to the point where um, just for safety purposes, I think that, you know, changing a whole approach, particularly on a training methodology for safety alone on the range can be problematic. It can be, again, it can be a training scar. I'm not saying it is, but it can be. That's, that's just my opinion. It's a fair opinion for sure. Uh, I uh, appreciate your, your view. Well, both of your viewpoints and Matthew, you and I, we've hashed this out uh, quite a bit and I, I might have to go back and listen to the podcast episode where we talked about this. I don't even remember what I said and I hope whatever I said, I was clear in what I I was advocating. Um, you were you were really articulate. You, was, was I? Beautiful. Yeah. I oh, what, what did I say then? No. Apparently, you remember better than I. Did. No, I'm just kidding. So, um, you know, I think where I'm at is, I think what I tried to communicate and what I I still believe in is, I, I agree with what you guys are saying about not being you know dogmatic. You know, not being so set in your ways that you can't think outside that box and consider other possibilities or other situations that might bring up certain exceptions because those certainly do exist, I think, in almost all things. But um, I, I, I definitely believe that the, the proper approach is to train to be able to reholster without looking at the holster. 
because I think that that's something that you should be able to do. You know, like it just makes sense. Like you should be able to go back to the holster and not look at it. At the same time, I'm not going to say that it's not okay to look at the holster when you need to. Um, now one thing that I would also advocate and also working with a lot of civilian students as well as with law enforcement officers, I mean, in, in our law enforcement handgun courses, we're always telling them, do not look at the holster. If I see an LEO, you know, student, you know, a cadet or whatever going through an academy, whatever the context is, or it could be a very experienced officer for all I know. Cause I've seen it. I mean, you guys have probably been there too, where, you know, <laughs> sometimes you, you get a Lieutenant or somebody that uh, <laughs> doesn't get out from behind the desk very often. And boy, those guys can be really scary, but either regardless of who it is in an LE class, it's like, I just saw you look at the holster when you were holstering. Why, why did you do that? Uh, usually the answer is I, I'm not exactly sure why, or, or sometimes if they can't articulate, they're like, well, I was kind of fumbling around. And so then I looked down. And what we would teach is, well, fumble around, <laughs> you know, it, it, not, not exactly. I mean, I would say, Hey, you know what? That's okay. I mean, the, the whole idea with reholstering is that it should be done generally in a safe situation. The, the scene is secure. There are exceptions, obviously in an LE scenario, uh, you, you might have to immediately go hands-on or transition to some other uh, weapon or tool or whatever it is. And you need to get back to that holster quick, which is exactly why you should have that muscle memory to enable you to do so. But in all other situations, and I think this is good advice, no matter who you are, always be careful reholstering. Always be yeah. careful and learn what your holster feels like and what your gun feels like going into the holster. And anytime you feel like something is just a little bit odd, like, well, that doesn't feel quite right. You should stop and reevaluate. And if, yeah. and at that point, that might be an appropriate situation to be like, okay, something's not right here. Um, okay. Let's what's going on here. Oh, my shirt is caught, you know, or whatever. So. Right. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree with both of you guys. And you know, we're supposed to be like disagreeing on this topic, but we, <laughs> I, I th- and I see, I think, more people would understand they, they, they agree on more than they disagree on if they just kind of talk about things. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, when, when I, and I understand the, the idea or the concept that you don't want to train somebody to look the holster or to look the gun back in the holster. Um, for me, when I, when I have, you know, when I take entry level civilian shooters that, you know, they're carrying inside the waistband, um, appendix style, or they have small of the back carry. Um, you know, they're, they're carrying a bunch of different types of weapons for me and for my, um, for me to be able to, um, get them to a level where they're comfortable, um, with their draw process and reholstering, at least initially I have them looking at their holster when they reholster, because, um, if we're live firing this, you know, um, they, they need to be cautious out on the range because it's different carrying, you know, appendix style with an in inside the waistband holster and having somebody searching around for the, for the holster to, to try to find the mouth of the holster than, you know, an outside duty holster that's on your hip. And so I think the, the, the potential for somebody to injure themselves drastically uh, is a lot higher. That being said, I do definitely agree with both of you guys that you should be able to reholster without looking. And I I know all of us can do that. I probably, I'm pretty sure that every listener who's, who's done dry fire 
who goes out and, and, and dry fired more than, you know, five minutes a day or five minutes a week for any period of time, um, drawing their weapon can reholster that thing without even looking because it's the same. It's just a reversal of the motion. So you kind of already have that, that down. So I definitely think it's a skill that you should have. I just, I just, I, I just would be cautious, um, reholstering. And I guess Riley, you put it really well that you have to understand if something feels odd or if something feels out of place, like, and it always concerns me, especially when we're in Ohio and we get cold weather, we're out there shooting and people have big, heavy jackets. They have drawstrings on them. They have multiple shirts, um, things like that, or they don't have a a really good holster quite frankly, you know? And, And so, um, this is the reality of a lot of concealed carriers. And so I, you know, I, I, get nervous just telling them, Hey, you can never look at the holster because, you know, um, it's going to, you're, you're going to take your eye off the threat and you're going to end up dead. And so, because if they don't understand, I guess, um, all the other scenarios, then they can put themselves in a position where they're trying to do something that they're not comfortable or capable at that level. Um, so yeah, definitely, you know, train, to be able to reholster without looking, but I wouldn't say, um, you know, as a civilian, if you look at the holster, you're wrong a hundred percent. So that, I guess, yeah. I'll, you know, th- that's kind of my way out or my, you know, justification. Uh, justification. <laughs> there you go. Just admit it. You're just trying to limit liability for yourself as an instructor. Well, I don't want anybody to die on the range. That would kind of suck. I haven't had anybody die yet. Um, maybe a little slide bite, but yeah, I mean, I don't want that to happen. No, but. we none of us want uh, any anyone that we're training to get hurt, uh, obviously. So, uh, uh, and I know that you're a fine instructor, Matthew. So, a little bit of a segue, but related, okay? And and then we, we need to be start kind of thinking about wrapping this up, obviously, but. Um, but I, I feel like that there's a good opportunity here to shift the conversation, keeping in mind that we're talking about applying skills in the real world, okay? Now, one of the reasons why we talk about the dangers of training scars uh, or maybe doing things repeatedly uh, to where we're ingraining that in muscle memory or however you want to refer to that, uh, that you know, one of the dangers is that you will do something that's not really compatible with the real world. Now, where, where I think there's a good opportunity to talk about things here is it is sometimes difficult and it's especially difficult for civilian gun owners, right? That don't typically have access to maybe the type of ranges that you might have as, a, as an LEO or in the military or whatever. It's, it can be very challenging to train, uh, to go to a range, to practice, to go through various things uh, and do it the way that is, you know, a, 100% appropriate for the real world, right? Like, I mean, we all know those ranges where you can't even draw from the holster while you're at the range. Like you have to follow these very strict rules about how the gun's handled, how it's placed, uh, you, you know, all this stuff, right? So to kind of start wrapping things up here, I'd like to get your thoughts, Aaron, and also Matthew, but what are your thoughts on, what are some of the strategies or techniques or ways or tips or tricks or whatever you want to call them? What are some of the ways that we can, Make sure that we are training properly and appropriately 
keeping in, in context, you know, the, the whole reason why I train is so that I am better prepared for the real world, right? So how do we do that, especially when maybe the, the circumstances or the location uh, or the context maybe doesn't allow uh, me to train the way that I know I should train? Matthew, you want to take that first? You want me to take it? Yeah, yeah. You, you can be the closer. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, so I think it's important. Um, number one, obviously, if you're going to get training, um, that you get good, good, reputable training, number one, like somebody who knows what they're doing. Um, number two, I think that keeping whatever you can do to not fall into a predictable routine as far as your training scenarios that you run. So if you always go out to the range and you always practice, Hey, I'm going to do this drill and that's all you ever do. And it's two shots. I reload two shots and and that's all you ever do. You, You are, that's a training that I believe you might, you might be quick on the draw. You might have a one sub second draw, be able to, you know, uh, get everything on target, but you're building a, a, a mental training scar, if you will, in the fact that you're programming your mind to say two shots and that's it and two shots and that's it. And I think we really have to get out of, um, a, a, a routine at the range. Now I'm not saying, um, don't run drills. I'm saying, make sure that you mix it up and you doing things. If you're going to practice a reload drill, it should be a reload at a time that you don't, that that you're not expecting. Um, that way you can, you can not only are you practicing reloads, but you can practice stoppages at the same time. Um, and I know the argument is, well, you know, you shouldn't know when your gun's going to reload because if you did, then you would, you know, you change the magazine before you even ran out of ammo. But what I'm saying is that I see a lot of, uh, Instagram videos and all this stuff where, you know, it's a one second, it's a draw one shot, change mag one shot, and they're not moving. They're not trying to, uh, evade any attack, you know, any sort of, um, uh, you know, evasive movement or anything. So I think what it's doing is it's building skill, but just not practical skill. Um, and, and so, I think for me, that's probably the biggest thing that I would say is just don't fall into a rut or a routine where it's predictable. Always try to do stuff that's unpredictable because life is unpredictable. We could try every single scenario. We can practice every drill, but it's not going to be the one that's going to happen. I guarantee it. You can practice a million different scenarios. It's not going to be the one that happens when you need to use your gun. So um, all that is, is just giving you you know, little reference points to pick off of in different things so you can apply it when it, when the time comes. So, um, yeah, that's my biggest, uh, recommendation for anybody who can't get out there and, 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 um, do it is, um, don't make it predictable. And also if you can't get out to a range where you can draw and do these things, dry fire, dry fire, like it's free. You, you don't need a range. You can do everything except manage recoil. That's the only thing that you can't do in dry fire. You can practice every single other other aspect of, you know, shooting a gun and evasive movements and uh, and everything. So, yeah, it's my long winded answer. <laughs> I wanted to, um, I kind of wanted to piggyback on one of the very first things you said, and that is ensuring that you. And I wrote an article about this. You know, those who can do, those who can't teach. As a controversial topic, and I didn't really even go into the topic itself because I think that's a fallacy to begin with. However, um, 
the important part of that particular article was ensuring that you are getting good quality instruction from a reputable person, from somebody who knows what they're doing. That being said, um, try to ensure everything that you're doing when you're training is, and, and, and again, I'm piggybacking on what you're saying, is put into the proper context. You might be really super good on this one particular marksmanship drill or, you know, drawing really fast and shooting. And you might be able to win every single quick draw competition. But if you're training for self-defense and that's the type of drills that you're doing, maybe that's not the correct context behind your training. Um, Also, that being said, um, I think it's important to vary your training exercises as well. So you, you you don't get into that predictability mode. Um, part of the ways that I do this is I might just have a buddy come out with me. Maybe, maybe that guy's not even an instructor. I'm like, here, here's two or three of my mags, load my mags. Here's some snap caps, put some snap caps in there, wherever you want to put them in there. And that'll give me the opportunity to have no idea what are in those mags. And if I'm going to shoot one shot or five shots or however many shots before I experience some sort of malfunction, that helps me out a lot. We do a lot of training at the house. So, um, we will get airsoft guns that are the exact same model of the the pistol that I carry, or we'll use cert pistols um, to be able to draw. And you can shoot, you know, right inside your house at at a target, or we hang balloons up and stuff. So they kind of move a little bit and it'll give us an opportunity to move. Um, One of the things I'm a big fan of is, uh, like I said, getting those balloons, putting them in different uh, areas of your house, and you can have different color balloons for the quote unquote threat and move throughout your own particular home, learning how to navigate your own furniture and so on and so forth. Being able to draw your weapon and, and reholster if you need to. And those are a bunch of skill sets that you can do that are practical in context skill sets, um, especially if you can't draw on the range. And uh, I like what you said, Matthew, when you're on the range, essentially um, the thing that you're going to be doing the most of is managing that recoil. And that's super important. But if you can't draw and you can't move and you can't use tactics and and things of that nature on the range, you can always do that without your actual firearm. Or if you want to do it with your firearm and use dry fire skills, um, there's a ton of different training approaches and methodologies that you can do. Um, just make sure that whatever training, whatever you're doing, it's in proper context. You're getting it from a reputable instructor, um, somebody who knows what they're doing. They're not going to be uh, steering you the wrong way. It's not going to be unsafe. Um, and that you're properly preparing yourself for the event that you need to fight for your life and defend you and your family. Mm-hmm. Uh, good thoughts. You know, I'm going to pick on you just one, one last time here, Aaron, uh, about something you said earlier. <clears throat> you had mentioned, uh, we were talking about people getting their, their heart rate elevated, you know, uh, getting all jacked up, you know, stressed out, uh, tunnel vision, whatever. Um, the, the question I wanted to ask you was, cause you, you, you specifically said that one of your concerns dealing about the holster was, you know, just refocusing on something else, uh, with that tunnel vision. And then you're, you know, not aware of what, what, what is around you. And that's certainly a, a valid point. So putting you on the spot a little bit, have you been in situations in your job where you have been all jacked up and you felt the effects of adrenaline uh, you've gotten tunnel visioned, that sort of thing. Absolutely. You know, I have a, a few different stories, both, uh, when I was a border patrol agent and when I was a customs officer in Long Beach. And I have stories of when I was in training scenarios where my heart rate was elevated so much to where I couldn't even hear somebody was yelling at me, talking to me, Hey, EMS is on their way. 
uh, I've already called, they're five minutes out, and I'll look at them screaming at them saying, hey, when's EMS going to get here? I'm, that's, I've been trying to tell you that. Um, you know, responding to different accidents or getting shot at while in the Border Patrol or, or whatever the case is. Um, when, that, when your heart rate is elevated and you can only hear your own heartbeat in your head, um, it is really difficult, in my experience, to break that tunnel vision, to get out of that cycle that your brain is in that fight or flight mode that I, I just need to survive this. And to be able to continue to function, so yeah. I don't know if that answered your question, yeah. but no, it absolutely does. So a follow up to that would be, what do you think people can do? Like, what is a big factor in whether someone whether someone handles those types of high stress environments better than than someone who doesn't? In your well, experience, I think, I think inherently, um, without any training or experience whatsoever, there are going to be people that handle certain situations better. But I think it's a trained skill set. You know, if you ha- go out and you get the training and you're confident in your training, and then you put that training to the test in some sort of either force on force or pressure testing, whatever it is you're learning, um, it's going to give you that confidence to be able to handle the situation significantly better than they would otherwise. And you're not going to get that going out on the range and just going through that very first CCW class and be like, cool, I got my CCW. I went through my two-day course. I'm good to go. I don't need any more training. I would really encourage people to go out and seek further training, go out and find those instructors who are going to push you. You know, one of the things that Matthew said, and I wanted to piggyback that on that as well, you know, he said, you go out and you constantly do the same drills. When you do that, you're going to get good at one, one specific skill set. But going to challenge yourself and grow as a person, as a CCW holder, as, you know, anything, unless you're practicing the skill sets you don't like doing. One of the things that I do when I go out or I try to do is take the skill sets that I'm terrible at and take the skill sets that I hate doing and Mm -hmm. practice those. It's easy for me to go out and do the things I rock at. Oh yeah, check this out. You know, hey, you guys want to do a dueling tree? I'll just smoke everyone here. That doesn't benefit me. You know, what benefits me is Practicing those skill sets that I need work on, practicing the skill sets that I need training on. And I think that's what we need to do um, as all of us in, in, you know, in the training industry, particularly when it comes to firearms. Yeah, that was a good answer. So as kind of my final thoughts, I think, as I've been thinking about this and, and I've been, you know, everything we've talked about today, I've, I've been thinking about how to wrap this in, in a nice package with a nice little neat little bow on top or whatever, you know, applying skills in the real world. Um, I was thinking about, well, okay, first of all, I've been reading a bunch recently about how our brains work. Okay. And I, I'm fascinated with that kind of stuff. And I've read on off and on again, you know, various times, different articles or even books that talk about how the brain works. And one thing that the brain is really good at doing is recognizing patterns. Would you agree? Agreed. Right. And so I think one thing that's really important to understand when we talk about training the right way so that we're training in a way that's appropriate for the real real world is in understanding that our that our brain recognizes patterns really well and and by that i mean that marksmanship is marksmanship right tactics are tactics Um, it's great when we can put the two things together there are times where we can't because of the situation or where we're training or whatever Um, but an important piece of, that we haven't really touched on here today that I think has a big impact on how someone actually responds and handles stress is, is experience. And I don't mean experience in, in a, I mean, obviously if you have experience in that, I mean, you've lived it 
as far as being out on the, on the, on the border, being on the streets, being shot at, you know, experiencing these different things. And so the more you go through that, the more you're better able to handle those situations because your brain processes it and goes, ah, this, you know, this is kind of like this other time that I experienced this, this. And, and, and so you're like, yeah, I'm good. You know, like you, you know how to the move to press forward, to move on, you know, to the next thing that you've got to accomplish as far as a task is concerned or whatever, because the brain has already recognized it, processed it, decided, yep, nothing new here, or it's similar enough that I can, I know what to do with it, right? Where people struggle is being in a situation that they don't have context to connect it to in their own personal uh, life experiences. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you want to look at it, not everyone is able to get the real life experience of being shot at and attacked and beaten and, and scared, right. You know, in these types of types of situations, I guess I would say it's fortunate. I, I, you're fortunate if you don't have to experience that kind of stuff. Right. <laughs> I, I, I think that, you know, the, go ahead. I don't want to cut you off. I, I was just going to add that. I think the key is, is obviously getting reputable training with somebody that can maybe help show you the way as far as, you know, someone that's concerned. And then second to that is to be as best you can mentally preparing yourself, thinking of possible scenarios, thinking about, uh, you know, as you talked about, as you described going through your home, uh, navigating through your home and how, you know, what I would envision how I might handle different scenarios that might happen inside the context of my home. You know, if this happened, then this, if that happened, then this, you know, you got to like play all that out in your mind. Because the more you can do this, the more you can go through scenarios, force on force, or mental rehearsals, the better chance you give your brain to find those connections that it needs to then go, ah, I know what to do here, as opposed to freak out or freeze or whatever. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And that's what I was going to cut you off with. Um, I think that there are definitely uh, training programs out there. And that's what I was trying to attempt to accomplish with my training program is to put people, you know, people that wouldn't otherwise gain these experiences through the military or law enforcement and give them those experiences as close as I can and as safely as I can in a training environment. So um, I think that there, there is a possibility to, to, to train that. You just have to go out and seek that type of training. Now, I can tell you right now, it's hard training and not a lot of people want to do it. And, it, you know, it is, you're going to be, you're really going to be pushing yourself. Um, and, you know, you can take people out of their comfort zones. But I think we would all agree here that uh, you know, when you're in a situation and you're out there on the street and you have to draw your firearm or you're in, in that fight for your life, yeah, you're in an uncomfortable situation that you've never been in and don't want to be in. So to be able to do that effectively in a training environment, I think is, is super important to give these people experience that they wouldn't otherwise get. Cool. Yeah. And one last thing, and I promise Riley, I will not, I will not go long winded on this, but one last thing, or actually two last things. Um, one, <laughs> two last things. The first one, um, you know, when you guys are talking about, um, you know, experience under stress, you know, inoculating your body to be able to manage stress is huge. And that is exactly why in the Marine Corps boot camp, you are screamed at your, it's not because, you know, they want to burst your eardrums. It's because they are constantly putting you, exposing you to stress, no matter what it is, whether you're eating, whether you're moving from point A to point B, you are under stress constantly. And it, it, it inoculates your body um, to be able to manage that anxiety and that stress level and keep it in a, in a controllable area where 
your, your physiological effects don't get out of control where you can't control them. So that's number one. And, and, and number two is that it, I'm thinking back to the police academy and when we do our uh, defensive tactics or DTAC classes and stuff, and the people that were really good at DTAC weren't necessarily the ones that were, you know, martial artists. I mean, they obviously had uh, uh, some, some skills, but the, the people that or the cops that were good out on the streets, as far as going hands-on and things like that, were the, were, were the ones that had been in fist fight. And, and, and I'm, I'm t- if, and when you take a rookie out and you'll know that and, until you get that rookie into the first fist fight and they get that first guy, who's going to pop them in the face or, or they're in their first fight until that point, they handle a call differently. After that point, it, it they start understanding, Hey, I know what it feels like now to get punched. I know what it feels like to be in a fight for my life and I don't want to be there. And so they start responding a lot quicker. They start responding a lot better. So, you know, when we're talking about trying to get as much experience you can, it's not necessarily the same as, you know, these, these instructors that put somebody down range and they're shooting at them, you know, and saying, Oh, they need to know, you know, that's why we're doing it. You know, I know it's dangerous, but we're doing it because they need to know what it's like to have bullets. You, you don't necessarily have to have that level of, you know, uh, a stress put on you, but any, when you go to these training events, and that's why it's so important to get good training is they will put you under uh, stress in, in the right context to, to uh, show you how you can better control and manage that stress. So, yeah, uh, those are, Good words to end on, Matthew. Uh, yeah, and it looks like we actually lost Aaron. So <laughs> we we may have just said goodbye unofficially. If he c- comes back, I I will uh, get him back into the the room here. But uh, I must have gone too long. He said, "Hey, I'm out <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't take it any longer." <laughs> or you said something just so <laughs> egregious, you know, egregiously bad. He just was like, "Ah, I'm done with these tools." So uh, there you have it. You know, a lot of good content we've covered today. I, I really feel like this has been, uh, we, we've talked about a lot of different things. Uh, and, and hopefully it made sense to those that are listening or viewing on Facebook today. Uh, I just wanted to make, make sure that everyone knew that, you know, for the last year or so, concealedcarry.com, we have been working on a curriculum that uh, I'm, I'm trying to get finished and rolled out. Uh, but an important part of this curriculum is putting people through scenarios that will, will I believe, help uh, them solve these types of problems. And by these types of problems, I mean real life, real world, deadly force problems. Somebody's trying to hurt you. Uh, we want to give you the tools, not only as far as shooting ability, but and, and not just tactics, but also with decision-making and with being, being able to handle stress so that you're well-prepared when you know, that time comes and we hope that time never comes for everyone that we deal with, our, our friends, our family, our students. But the, the fact is, is we cover regularly on the podcast, uh, bad things happen to good people on a daily basis. Uh, it's not likely to be you next or me, but uh, it could be. You never know when that day will come. Uh, Matthew, you've probably had some some scary things that have happened. I've had some scary things that have happened to me that could have gotten out of hand or had, or could have gone, gone a different direction. Um, our hope is though, that we give people the tools they need to actually succeed in those situations. And so part of this new curriculum rolling out from, uh, 
concealedcarry.com. Uh, we're, we're calling, we're still working on some of the verbiage, but it'll, it is, it's part of our guardian curriculum uh, associated with guardian nation and everything we do there. But we'll definitely be uh, incorporating a lot of different training scenarios, stressful situations, things like that as part of that curriculum, because I, I do feel that's critical to have as, as trainers uh, and as trainees. So, don't see Aaron popping back in the uh, the waiting area here, but uh, so we appreciate Aaron for being part of the podcast, uh, taking part in this uh, 208th episode of the Concealed Carry Podcast. It's been wonderful having him. Oh, here he is. We'll get him back in. Uh, so actually, I'll save some of those nice words for him because we, <laughs> there he is. <laughs> Aaron, looks like we got you back, buddy. Good, good. Sorry about that. I apologize. Uh, my my computer here just kind of died on me. Right. <laughs> it, it happens. And so we were just wrapping it up, and 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 you know we recognize things happen, and we said, well, it looks like we're saying goodbye to Aaron already, but that and that's all right. I just wanted to let you know, sir, that uh, thank you for for your time today and for being a part of the Concealed Carry Podcast and for you know the, the excellent uh, thoughts and viewpoints that you shared with us today. All right. Well, I, I appreciate being on. I, I thought it was super productive and I, I enjoyed being on the show. Fantastic. Well, you know, maybe we can get you again because uh, uh, certainly enjoyed our time today. And if you're open to it at some point down, down the road in the future, maybe we'll, we'll try to do it again. So absolutely. Cool. Cool stuff. So with that, just a reminder, uh, everyone, if you don't mind, give our sponsors of today's episode a little love. Go check out PigLube, concealedcarry.com forward slash PigLube, and also guardiannation.com. And so with that, we are going to bid you adieu till next time, till next week. Next week, we'll, we'll start off the week uh, with our usual news episode of the podcast. We'll have another great selection of news stories to share with you, plus justified save stories. And so with that, thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Aaron, for coming out. That was awesome. And, uh, Thanks, everybody, for listening. Absolutely. Thanks for the invite. And, uh, yeah, thank you guys for uh, watching and tuning in. Yeah. And thank you, everyone, for uh, for sharing this information with your friends and family, getting word out on the podcast or Facebook Lives, whatever. Uh, just a reminder, after everything we've talked to, about today, to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care, everyone. Reminded that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm related incidents and laws. But things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.